you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there is a New Testament in the chair uh, in front of you. And there you'll find Mark to be the second book of the New Testament. Sometimes amazing things come from unlikely places. Uh, just this morning I was uh, listening uh, to uh, an interview about a book who, that had recently come out. Um, I was listening to that this morning on the way to church and it was interesting. It was basically uh, uh, a short little biographical snippets of people that you should know and likely don't know. And there were some very uh, odd little uh, things there. We, um, one guy in particular, it turns out that is more or less the guy who is responsible for our space program and all of our rocketry is not, uh, uh, not the man we usually think him to be, the German who came, but he himself says it was this other guy that nobody's heard of who really designed all of the fuel systems and, and, uh, and actually came up with the chemical component of the solid fuel that goes into the boosters. And yet this guy was a nut job. He was a Satanist. And before all of his experiments, he would come out in these robes and invoke uh, the, the name of Pan to bless us. I mean, just bizarre stuff. Well, not, not wanting to labor on that too much, I want us to think about someone from biblical history, someone at the time of Christ who was also an unlikely person from which came amazing things. Consider this man who had not long been following Jesus when he found himself with him in the Garden of Gethsemane as the Roman guard and the Jewish authorities came to arrest Jesus. And when they came to get him, they also grabbed this man by his cloak. And rather than be taken into custody uh, with Jesus, he in fact wiggled out of his clothes and ran away stark raving naked into the night in fear. Later, the same man who pledged faith to the resurrected Christ sought out an opportunity to serve Jesus. Specifically, he aligned himself with Paul and Barnabas and sought to accompany them and serve alongside them on this uh, long mission trip, taking the gospel where it had never been preached before. But he couldn't hack it. Soon into this, his term of service, he abandoned Christ's missionaries, even as he abandoned Christ himself in the garden and fled back home. Yet it's from this young man, John Mark, that great things eventually came. You read in Acts that when uh, Paul is about to set off again and Mark says, give me another chance, he says, forget it. He said, you, you blew it once. I'm not taking you along again so you can go crying home to mommy. Uh, forget it. And of course, uh, Paul's uh, partner Barnabas uh, is, uh, is much more willing to give Mark a second chance. And so they, they split their ways. And yet, and yet, by the time that Paul's life is about to end, things have changed dramatically. In 2 Timothy, we see Paul writing, saying all of his friends in the ministry, all of his companions have abandoned him. He is now languishing in this Roman cell. Only Luke is there attending him as friend and physician. And he writes to young Timothy and he says, Come see me as quick as you can. And then he says in chapter 4, Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Here is one who started off being, um, uh, for, for lack of a more spiritual term, a mama's boy. Who couldn't take the difficulties of the mission field. And Paul said, I have no time for that kind of person. And yet here at the end of Paul's life, Mark has grown, he has matured. And now he says, more than anybody else, this is the man I want to see before I die. But more than that, Mark did at one time what no one else had ever done before. 
he wrote the book that was in your hands, that's in this larger book, the Bible, the Gospel according to Mark, and in writing that book, invented the kind of literature we call the Gospel. Now, I don't mean the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't make that message up. But what he did, he was the first one to write what we call a Gospel book that Matthew and Luke and John would also eventually write. Mark was the first one to expertly weave together a biographical accounting of the life of Jesus along with examples of his teaching. Mark was the pioneer in that sense, creating a document that not only would encourage and teach God's people for generations to come about who Jesus was, but would also be a document that would also introduce those who did not know Jesus to Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. In the process of crafting this gospel, Mark desires to show both who Jesus is as well as what it means to follow him as a disciple. And what we will see is that Mark shows us that Jesus is the servant king. The one who not only sets an example for his disciples to follow, but one who supremely serves his disciples by dying for them as a ransom, securing their salvation. This morning, that is the very thing that we want to see. We want to see who Jesus is. We want to see that he is the divine son of God who suffers for the salvation of his people. But more than that, he is the risen savior who calls his disciples to follow him in service of others, even to the point of suffering. And in order to see this, we want to look at Mark chapter 10. You know, up until this point in the the story that Mark is unfolding, Jesus has uh, begun his ministry. He has called his disciples to himself. And now for three years, he has been preaching and healing, advancing the kingdom of God, announcing its coming through himself. And so we find ourselves then at uh, verse 32 of chapter 10. And Mark tells us, Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise." As James and John, the sons of Deve- and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." And he said to them, "What do you want me to do for you?" And they said to him, "Grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory." Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?" And they said to him, "We are able." And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. 
From this passage, we see five ways that Jesus serves his people as king. Five reasons also that we are called to trust him and follow him as his disciples. So the first thing that we see, the first reason that we are to follow Jesus is this. Jesus is the king who identifies with his people. Jesus is the king who identifies with his people. When Jesus talks about himself in the Gospels, but especially in Mark, he often uses the term son of man. He doesn't say, I will do this. He doesn't say, the Messiah will do this. He says, the son of man will do such and such. Even in the passage we read, we saw that title used twice. And one of the reasons Jesus liked to use that, uh, that title, son of man, was because it was a bit nebulous. Uh, there was a vagueness as to what it really meant. They say, well, why, why would Jesus like that? Well, it was for this simple reason. There was a lot of mistaken ideas in Jesus' day about what the Messiah was going to be like, what he was going to do, how he would be the Messiah. And so it would have been nearly impossible for Jesus to show up on the scene and say, hey guys, guess what? I'm the Messiah. Why? Number one, because there was all kinds of people running around saying they were the Messiah. I mean, we, we don't really get that uh, in, the, in the gospel accounts, but just history tells us there are all kinds of people that run around saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah, let's raise up an army and throw off the Romans. And the fact this was done so much, if Jesus would have said, I'm the Messiah, that's what everybody would have been expecting. And so instead, he uses this term, this term son of man. That there would have been a familiar term from the Old Testament, as we'll see in a minute, but no one was sure exactly what he meant by that. And so by taking this kind of empty title, Jesus would be able to fill it up with meaning and eventually say, this is what the Son of Man will be. I am the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is the Messiah you've been looking for. Now, again, that phrase would have been familiar. It was a title that showed up a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. In fact, it even came up in our psalm this morning. When it's used in the prophets, and almost always in the Old Testament, it is used as a means of contrast between the Lord God Almighty and those humans who would stand before Him. Confronted before God Himself, even the most godly of prophets is just a man. Just a being made from the dust of the earth. And that is what the phrase is meant to emphasize. And when Jesus uses it of himself, there's a sense in which uh, he's bringing that meaning to himself. He, in calling himself the Son of Man, he wants us to understand he is a man. He is fully man. He is fully human. He's so identified with sinners in order to save them that God the Son took on the flesh of humanity. And Mark wants to make sure that Christians never forget that. So throughout the gospel, he describes Jesus and all of his humanity. In chapter 3, he is grieved over the hearts of the hardness of men's hearts. In chapter 4, we see Jesus tired, sleeping in a boat. In chapter 8, he is frustrated over the slowness of faith. In chapter 11, he is hungry for food. In chapter 14, he is filled with sorrow in, on the eve of his crucifixion. Jesus was fully human. He experienced the range of emotions and experiences that are endemic to humanity. That stands in great contrast to... Uh, some people who would seek to be our leaders today. One of, the, one of the great criticisms that you hear all the time on television, the radio, and one that is not a new one when it comes to our politicians is that they just don't know what real life is like. That because of their priorities and their lifestyle, it is clear they are not in touch with the common man in this country, and therefore it's hard to trust them. It's hard, it's hard to, to, to believe they really know what it's like for the everyday American. In fact, that's 
sometimes a reality for Christian leaders as well. Though they try to teach and preach the Bible, they nevertheless have so sequestered themselves, so stood aloof and, and afar from the everyday people in their pews that people feel like, he doesn't really know anything about me. How can he understand what I'm going through? And there is a great danger to take that same kind of thinking and apply it to Jesus. He was God. Yeah, he was God in the flesh, but he was still God. How, how can he possibly know what I'm going through? How can he understand the pain that is in my life right now? And the question that Mark wants to answer back to that is, he can, because he himself has experienced it. He is not far off from us. We can never hold up the deity of Christ to the point that we forget his full humanity. He has lived among us. He has lived like one of us. He has experienced pain and grief and temptation and suffering. In fact, more than anyone else, he knows exactly what your life has been like. He knows what you have gone through. He has identified with us in our weakness and he knows our mortal frame. Therefore, rather than being discouraged in the face of sin and sorrow, we should be all the more encouraged to go before Him, seeking the help that we need. This is the very argument of Hebrews in chapter 4. He says, we do not have a high priest in Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus identifies with his people by taking on flesh and becoming fully human. Nevertheless, he was not just human. He was also fully divine. This is, leads us to the second thing that we see this morning, and that is this. Jesus is the king who reigns over his people. Jesus is the king who reigns over his people. He says in the last verse, verse 45, The Son of Man came not to be served. Now, sometimes... Uh, we, we, we hear that and uh, we just kind of blow over it. But think about the oddness of what he is saying there. The Son of Man came not to be served. In fact, he'll go on to say, but to serve. The Son of Man came. What does that mean? Well, when I came into the world, I had no intentions of being here. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, I literally came in kicking and screaming, Okay. Uh, I, I didn't plan what I was going to do with my life when I was born. I did not come into this world with this grand scheme saying, I'm not going to be served, I'm going to serve, or, or anything remotely similar to that. And so in that sense, Jesus stands apart from the rest of humanity. He has come very specifically with a plan. He came choosing the when, the where, and the why of coming into this world. And again, we are kicked back to this title, Son of Man. And we have seen how in using it, he can use it to speak of his utter humanity like the rest of us before God. And yet, and yet, he can also use it to speak about the fact that he is more than just a man. You will notice that whenever Jesus uses the title of himself, he never says he is a son of man. He always says he is the son of man. In doing so, he is pointing us back, I believe, to that unique being who was like a son of man, but so much more than the prophet Daniel was given a vision of in chapter 7. Do you remember that text? We looked at it several months ago. Maybe you don't. Here's what Daniel says. 
He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to this one who was like a son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Why does Daniel say he's not a son of man? Because no son of man could do this. No son of man is worthy of this. Nevertheless, this glorious being who has given all authority and reign over all things, whose kingdom will never pass away, there was something about him that made him look like a son of man. And when the fullness of time we understand Jesus to be this one, this one who had an appearance of a son of man, yet was also the glorious man who was given authority to reign over all peoples, all things in heaven and on earth. He was one who was fully human. He was fully a man, but he was more than that. He was also fully God. And again, Mark wants his readers to keep this understanding clear in their minds. He doesn't want the Christians to go around saying, isn't it great he was just like one of us? Isn't it great he was just like one of us? Just a man, just like us. You know, this is the, the great problem with that, that musical God spell. Is it completely denies the deity of Christ when he's singing, I'm just a man, I'm just a man. Yes, he was a man, but he was not just a man. He was more than that. He was also God. And so from the outset of, of his ministry, Mark tells us, he, the opening verse says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not just the Son of Man, the Son of God. As Jesus confronts demons, casts them out of sinners, they recoil in fear because they know who he is. They say, you are the Son of God. You are the son of the most high God even. Even Jesus himself pulls in this understanding of deity that we may understand, saying that one day he will return with the glory of his heavenly father and his holy angels. Therefore, as the divine son of God, Jesus is given reign over all things, including, including those who actively acknowledge it, his people. He is not just man, he is also God and therefore reigns as king over his people. Friends, we do not worship one who is just a man. We do not pray in the name of one who is just a man. We do not live and move and have our being for one who is just a man. No, we serve King Jesus, God the Son from everlasting to everlasting who took on flesh. The question is, do we really do that though? You know, if you're driving down the road... If you're driving down the highway and you see a cop, what do you do? What, what do you do? <laughs> you fly by him. No, you don't. You, you lease off the gas. You kind of sit up. You kind of adjust the seat belt. You start checking your mirrors a little bit. You kind of tighten up on the grip. You, you, you start acting like the authority is there, right? It's when they're not there. You kind of, you know, slouch and you're driving with one hand and drinking with the other, you know, and trying to text even though you're not supposed to do that now. It's illegal and all this kind of stuff, you know. I, I know one guy, I won't tell you his name, but he reads the paper and works on his laptop while he's driving. And, uh, and, and but here's the thing. Don't, don't we do that with Jesus as well? We come into church and we kind of we dress up and we kind of act pious and we say hi and, and you know, but, but then when we get away from church, when we get away from God's people, what do we do? We go see that movie. We, we never tell our Christians that friends that we saw. 
we slip into crude and crass language and use words we would never use in this place. We do all, we, 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 our lifestyle begins to change in all kinds of ways because the authority of Christ is not actively held up in front of our faces. It's like the cop we can't see. The question is, does Jesus really reign over our lives? If he does, that's not just something that he does when we're aware of it. It's all the time. From the rising of our heads off the pillow to the falling of down of our heads on the pillow at night, he is king. And as his disciples, our lives should reflect that. He is not just man. He is God in the flesh, ruling and reigning over his people. But paradoxically, Jesus is also the king who serves his people. Jesus is also the king who serves his people. Here we get to the very heart of the story that Mark preserves for us. Notice he says that in, the, in the first verse we looked at, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you read over Mark's gospel this week, you will know Jerusalem is portrayed as a place of resistance to Jesus' ministry. And yet now, he says, he is setting a course directly for that resistance. Mark says, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They're not saying, come on, come on, come to Jerusalem. No, he is the one saying, we are going to Jerusalem. And they are following behind. He is not a victim of fate or circumstances, but Isaiah, as Isaiah would prophesy, he has set his face, his face like flint towards his mission. And Jesus tells his disciples, this is what the mission is. This is why we're going. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has explicitly said he is going to die at the cross. And the sad thing is that just as we see here, so also in the other previous two times that Jesus says this, um, his disciples do not immediately gasp and wonder and say, it's amazing, it's unbelievable. No, the first thing they do in their response is to immediately try and position themselves for power. They immediately try and position themselves for power. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the very next verse, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a question. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Can you imagine the sheer gall of that question? I mean, that's chutzpah. Jesus has just said he's headed to Jerusalem where he is going to be captured, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be killed. And then he drops the bomb of the resurrection on them and says, but I'm going to rise again. And what are they like? Yeah, 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 that's cool. But hey, listen, can, can we be in the place of highest authority in your kingdom? I mean, I mean, you know, they're the other disciples are here, but come on. I mean, it's us. It's James and John. Can, can we have the glory with you in your kingdom? I mean, it's astonishing. And yet, isn't that... Isn't that who we are as, as human beings? I mean, from the earliest of ages, we start in school, and, and, and what do many of us try and be? Teacher's pet. We, we want to be the favorite. We want to have recognition. Or perhaps, per, perhaps uh, it, it turns a different way, and we're the school bully. And we want everyone to acknowledge through the force of our will that we are the best. We get a little bit older and we start choosing our friends based upon their coolness very often. If I can be friends with this person, that's going to ratchet up my coolness a couple levels. And so sometimes we even we leave off other friends in pursuit of new ones because there is an advantage to us. We try and beat our friends out in sports so that our name will be on the trophy. 
And then you get into the teenage years and everything hits, doesn't it? You see guys and girls vying for one another's attention. You see sports players worried more about their performance than how the team does, taking it as a personal slight if they don't win. I've heard on more than one occasion, oh man, this is going to throw off my stats because the other guys couldn't do their job and win the game. Yeah, I thought it was a team sport. We get into adulthood and it doesn't change, does it? We just, we just learn, we learn to play the game and be more subtle. So, so we'll be in a group and someone will be telling jokes. And, and, and we observe that, that, you know, we think we're funny, but this guy's getting all the laughs. So even though the conversation may be moving in a different direction, we're always trying to get that last zinger in. So they're laughing at our joke last and so thinking that we're the funniest. Other times we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll clothe it in piety and we're sharing prayer requests. And what do we try and do? We, we always want to pull out the trump card, the most bleak request we can possibly think of, so that we get the award for worst week. Everyone says, oh... And, we, and they think that we're so much godly because we've been able to persevere and we're seeking prayer for this. You see how, you see how we are? In all of that, what are we doing? We are vying for authority and power and glory for ourselves. We are seeking recognition. And Jesus says, that's what the world does. It craves power and it glories in it once it's achieved. He tells his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They throw their weight around here. All right, I'm in charge here. I've got the authority. It's what I say that goes. But Jesus says, it shall not be that way among you. Whoever would be the greatest must be, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus says there is a different standard for greatness in the kingdom of God. He says the greatest in the first is least in last. The one closest to the throne room in heaven will be the one who served in the greatest ways in this life. That's not only true for Jesus' disciples, it is true for Jesus himself. Here is the amazing truth of the incarnation. The one who had all authority, the one who had all glory, the one who deserved to be served by all people laid that privilege aside to serve his people, even sinful people who would betray, deny, and rebel against him. And that service ultimately culminated in the cross of Christ. And this is the fourth thing that we see. Jesus is the king who ransoms his people. Jesus is the king who ransoms his people. James and John have just said they want to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom, and now Jesus pushes back a little, asking, do you really know what that means? Jesus said to them, do you know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, this cup is usually a symbol for something apportioned by God. It could either be the cup of blessing and joy that God has appointed that one receive, or it could be the cup of wrath and judgment that God has appointed and determined one to receive. In fact, usually it is the latter. It is this idea of wrath and judgment. And that is exactly what Jesus means here. He's already said that going to Jerusalem means death for the Son of Man for himself, but now he raises the bar. He says, this isn't just death by human hands. This is death under God's own wrath. In fact, so all-consuming will this wrath be. So, so, so much will I drink down the cup to the very dregs that Jesus calls this wrath a baptism. That means he is being fully immersed in the fullness of God's fury towards sinners. 
And Jesus says, that is what the, what the ultimate display of service and greatness looks like. It is the ultimate display of what greatness in the kingdom is, laying down one's life for sinners. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' day, to pay a ransom meant to pay a price to free someone from debt, from slavery, from being a prisoner of war. It meant to atone for, to cover over, or to expiate the debt that was held against them. And what Jesus is saying is, this is what my death accomplishes for my people. It is the means by which they will be set free. At the cost of his own life, Jesus pays the debt of his people. And behind Jesus' words of ransom, of dying for the many, is the fulfillment of an important and precious prophecy from the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, God tells his people what the servant will look like, how the Messiah will serve and save his people. He says, this one who is coming, he is going to be despised and rejected by men. He will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he, is, he, he, will be, uh, he was despised and we, are esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later he says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, that was the mission of Jesus. It was not a mission he regretted. It was not a mission he tried to evade. It was a mission. It was not a mission he tried to run from. It was a mission he embraced. Unlike the powerful men of the age who held on to their authority, who held on to their power and loved to exercise it over others, Jesus was one who willingly laid that aside to die for people, to die as a substitute for their sins. Why? That he might be a ransom for them to die in the place of sinners, that their, their bondage, their slavery to sin might be set free. They might be set free from that, that their debt of sin towards God might be paid and the power of death might no longer have hold over them. That freedom comes to God's people, not when they offer their own service to God, not when they try and be servants for Him, but rather when they trust Christ to be their ransom, believing and treasuring Him to be their salvation. In light of all these things, then, what we see is that Jesus is the king who leads his people. Jesus is the king who leads his people. You know, over the years, there have been uh, all manner of scholars who have tried to um, gut the Christian faith of its meaning. They have tried to redefine who Jesus is. They have tried to redefine what the cross is. You can, you can do a Google search sometime for the, the Jesus Seminar. What they did was go through the Gospels and they highlighted every verse anywhere from, yeah, Jesus probably said this to Jesus definitely didn't say this. And what's amazing is that whenever someone undertakes that kind of project, 
Jesus always comes out looking a lot like them. That's how you know it's probably not worth your time to invest in. But one of the things that they often do is point to the cross and this idea of ransom and all these kinds of things. And they say, really, that's not what Jesus' cross was seeking to accomplish. What the cross was, was an example for God's people to follow. In fact, you have a man who is in some circles esteemed as a great evangelist, Charles Finney. And yet this is, the very, this is his very understanding of the atonement. He supposedly preached the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people. And yet never did he say Christ died for their sins. He said, Christ died in obedience to God, and you should do the same and be saved. And on his deathbed, he could not understand why the thousands that professed faith had turned away from the faith and went back to the world. Someone should have shook him and said, Finney, it's because you're not preaching the cross. You're preaching human effort. And so in response to these attempts to, to undermine the meaning of the cross, to change its meaning, people have, people have showed, not just in terms of, of simple reading, but scholars uh, have, have showed that, look, the Bible may emphasize different, different metaphors or different aspects of Jesus' cross work, but at the end of the day, it is all simply reflections of one diamond. And as it is as turned and spun and different facets reflect the glory of God. And it comes down to this substitutionary atonement. On the cross, at its heart, was Jesus substituting himself for sinners. And we must hold on to that even as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15, which we heard read earlier. And yet, and yet, in affirming that, in emphasizing that, what we cannot lose is along with that, the understanding that yes, Jesus' cross was an example to us. It wasn't just an example to us, but it certainly was an example to us, even in his, his going to the cross as an atoning sacrifice. Isn't that what Jesus says here? His whole argument on how the disciples should serve and be humble is rooted in, this is what I did when I came and died for people on the cross. Yes, I want atonement, but I did so with humility and service. And yet I think very often that is a message that we as Jesus' disciples refuse to hear. We do not want to see him as the example to follow. We have somehow forgotten that he has said a student is not greater than his master. When Jesus asked James and John if they can drink the cup and experience the baptism that will be his own, they said, we are able, absolutely. And Jesus said, you know what, you're right, but not in the way that you think. Says, you will drink the cup, you will experience the baptism. And surely what he does not mean is that they're going to go to the cross and atone for sins. No, that was once for all with the cross. Nevertheless, what he means is this. If you follow me as a disciple, I will lead you, not through your, your best life now, but through service and suffering so that you can have your best life later. That is where Jesus leads his disciples. So in chapter 8, he makes no bones about this. He says to the crowds, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now what did Jesus just say? Did he say, if you want to be super spiritual, if you want to be first in the kingdom, if you want to go to that high plateau of advanced discipleship, then you deny yourself, take up your cross, and lose your life in following me. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said, if 
anyone comes after me, this is what it's going to look like. Not just the super spiritual, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just like the, the associational missionaries and those that go overseas. If anyone wants to be my disciple, this is what their life will look like. It's not one seeking comfort and ease or power and glory for themselves. Rather, it is one that follows the example of Jesus serving others even to the point of suffering. That is where the servant king leads his people. When I was in college, I served as an intern at a church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was the first time I'd ever been to Michigan. Previously, I had served for two years as an intern at my home church, but the experiences were vastly different. At my home church, the, the intern position was, was a very informal one that uh, the youth minister set up for me because I, I felt God calling me to ministry, and I had some small measure of uh, leadership there. I led a Bible study every once in a while or a Wednesday night youth event. Uh, one time I was able to, to preach on a Sunday night. But when I was at the church at Kalamazoo, it was very, very different. I was expected, like all the other pastors, to sit on the platform during the services. I was given the weekly task of leading uh, the youth Bible study and the youth Wednesday night uh, prayer gathering. I was part of staff meetings and deacons meetings. I was given uh, ministry projects to coordinate that involved the entirety of the church. I was, for the first time in my life, called Pastor John. And in my mind, I was gaining valuable experience. But one member wanted to make sure that I learned an even greater lesson that I would carry with me throughout my life. It was on the Sunday of the church's anniversary service, much like the one that we have coming up, although they were not quite as old as, as our church has been, no offense intended. I had worked hard the previous week helping to coordinate uh, meals and, and uh, setting up the fellowship hall, moving all kinds of chairs and tables around uh, in different patterns, making sure I could come up with 100, uh, 400 places uh, for people to sit and uh, the day of, the, of, the, of the, the, the event came, we had normal worship services, we had a great lunch, and then we went to a special service where we would hear testimonies and see some, some video clips. And uh, I was uh, headed out toward that service uh, like I felt like I should be doing as a pastor, and this guy grabbed my hand and said, come on, let's, let's clean this place up before we go out to the service. Now, in my mind, I had worked hard setting it up. I had worked for hours that week. Someone else could clean it up. They could wait till later. After all, I was the pastor. I should be in the service. But he wouldn't let up. He pushed, he pushed, he pushed, all the while telling me, if you're going to learn how to be a real pastor, you've got to learn how to be last. You've got to learn to be the one who is willing to stay behind and pack up the chairs when no one's looking. Well, I was frustrated. And I began to move fast and work hard. That's, that's how you know if I'm irritated about something because I just I move like lightning. It's like, it's like the physical exercise is working, working the, 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 the tension out. And as I was doing it, I think he knew that, that, that I was frustrated about this. So, so he, he didn't lay off me, though. He kept pressing in. He kept digging in and emphasizing the very thing that Jesus did. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Don't worry that no one's even seeing you doing this. Just do it because it's the right thing to do serving your people. And it was in the sweat and irritation. It was in the frustration. And it was in the conversation of this man that my true heart was laid bare on that day. The reality was I didn't want to serve. I wanted recognition. I didn't crave to serve. I craved greatness. I didn't long to serve, I longed to be served. 
I was not following my king. I thought I was better than my king. The reality is, I don't even remember that man's name. He was a professional businessman and he traveled so much, I probably only saw him four Sundays out of the entire summer I was there. And yet, in some ways, he taught me the most valuable lesson I learned that whole time. You cannot understand Jesus apart from the cross. Jesus is the servant king. Jesus is the savior who defeats his enemies, not with a sword, but with a sacrifice. The sacrifice of his own life for sinners. Jesus had every right to the glory of the universe, yet he served his people humbly, willingly, lovingly, even to the point of death. And Mark makes very clear what Jesus taught those first disciples, and it was this. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you see that, unless you believe that, unless you imitate that. Does that mean we earn our salvation? Absolutely not. Salvation comes by faith alone in the gospel message, in the atoning work of Christ. But listen to this, my friends. Real faith will be evidenced by real fruit. And if you find yourself recoiling from service, recoiling from sacrifice, recoiling from servanthood, in every way wanting to be the opposite of what Jesus is, then maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus. Because Jesus says His disciples will follow after Him. They will imitate Him. They will seek to be last because that is what their King did. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would not be like those disciples who would hear Jesus announcing his intentions to willingly die for them and yet immediately begin jockeying for power and position. Instead, God, we pray that we would trust in Christ to make us right before you and then we would follow him in serving for your glory. God, give us a servant's heart, God, as we are reminded, as we exalt Christ himself in our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.